Scrapper fans, and welcome to the fifth edition of Rerun the Rivalry, the show within the Let Me Tell You Something canon that's a December special, a Christmas present for all of you good little boys and girls and anything in between there that are our loyal listeners, as the Father's Christmas, myself, Lorcan Mullen, and my co-host, Simon Cross, discuss a long-running rivalry in pro wrestling, breaking it down match by match. We've started off with maybe the great rivalry of the 21st century, Kazuchika Okada against Hiroshi Tanahashi. We've just had what would have been thought of maybe as the first blow-off to the storyline with their Wrestle Kingdom main event. But a mere four months later, we're back, Simon, aren't we? We're looking at a match taking place on the 7th of April, 2013. Once again, for the IWGP heavyweight title. I've forgotten the name of the event. I've forgotten to write that that one down. Can you bail me out here? It is Invasion Attack. Such a stupid name. Well, this is around the time... Aren't all invasions attacks? (laughs) No, there are stealth invasions. We're literally about to get a... That's an attack! (laughs) It's not an... Well, it's starting to sound like my uncles here. But, uh... (laughs) What? That? No. 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 (laughs) You bastard. They walk around like they own the place. Anyway, talking about someone who walks around like he owns the place, Kazuchika Okada is not daunted by his match coming up. I hate you. (laughs) (laughs) I I do wonder, actually, if Invasion Attack is referencing the fact that this is around the time the Bullet Club was formed. That might make sense, actually. But, yeah, whilst that's bubbling up underneath, the title picture is still being defined by Okada and Tanahashi. This is their fourth match over a period of 14 months now. And as we were saying, I think that I've come to a conclusion now from watching this and watching the next match that really... If we were to truly do the storyline of the the actual storyline that everyone associates Okada Tanahashi with, we should be ending with the Wrestle Kingdom at 2016, which is the ninth match of their series, you know, the eighth match of the actual rivalry. Because that is the moment, spoiler alert, that Okada does truly dethrone Tanahashi as the ace of the company. But I was looking at it, and I think that using a little bit of jiggery-pokery Venn diagramming of an overlap, that there are essentially three trilogies of matches within these eight matches that we're covering for this part of the series. There's Tanahashi, another classic hero facing adversity and, and facing it down and coming out triumphant, even stronger than before. There's Okada asserting his true dominance over Tanahashi, And then there's Okada assuming the true mantle of Ace. So the first trilogy of matches are the matches we've just covered. Matches 2, 3 and 4. Tanahashi loses the title. Tanahashi regains the title. Tanahashi wins the final rubber match of that series. At the grandest show of them all in Japanese terms. So that's Hiroshi Tanahashi's trilogy. We're now entering the second trilogy. But we've also entered the third trilogy at the same time. So the second trilogy of matches are the matches that we're about to cover for this one, which are the rest of the 2013 matches, which are Okada winning this title at Invasion Attack, Okada and Tanahashi wrestling to a 30-minute draw at the G1 Climax, and then Okada defeating Tanahashi in the seventh match in the series, the King of Pro Wrestling match. And that's the one where Okada is like, I'm not a flash in the pan, I am actually probably your physical superior. 
And literally at the end of that match, we'll get it more into it, but Tanahashi vowed never to challenge Okada for the IWGP title again if he loses to him at the King of Pro Wrestling match. Ah. But the third trilogy of matches, the first one of that is the first Wrestle Kingdom match. So like chapter three of Tanahashi story is also chapter one of Okada at the Tokyo Dome story. Of course, yeah, yeah. So you might need a pen and paper, but it does all make sense, listeners. <laughs> I know that that sounds complicated, but I'll, I'll elaborate more as we go on. But this is the start of a new series of stories to me, which this is flat out Okada is the protagonist because Okada is the one in this match whom you're supposed to sympathise with more than Tanahashi, I believe. We do get a card of chance at the start of this match, so it seems like the tide has turned that way with the audience as well. Well, Okada doesn't really cheat, particularly in this match. Tanahashi's the one that holds on to submission holds when Okada reaches the ropes. Even down to the post-match part, where in the previous time that Okada had defeated Tanahashi for the title, he had just walked out, basically. Uh, walked out to bask in his victory and it's up to Naito to do all the sending the fans home happy bits. Whereas with this one, when Okada wins the title, he has to like shake hands with the dignitaries and he has to be, and he even, and he does talk briefly before Gado takes the microphone away and becomes his spokesman again. So Okada is, and again, it's probably because what we're now starting to establish is that chaos will not be the defining top heel units of New Japan going forward. That is going to be Prince Devitt and the Bullet Club. So what you may be wondering is that we're kind of doing everything talk outside of the match. And the reason is that this is the first one where we're doing um, essentially a follow-up on something we've done already. Because we have talked about this match. We talked about this match for almost 40 minutes. 45 minutes once before. And that is for the Melt to Five Star Project, which was our first, your first at least, experience of Tanahashi and Okada. Yeah. I believe. This was also, you know, when we just watched a shit ton of wrestling in one year. Oh, <laughs> And really God. pushed ourselves. Yeah. I mean, it was the best kind of stuff, but even if you're, all you're eating is caviar, after a while you get a little bit sick of caviar. <laughs> right, little sidebar, you've just unlocked a memory in my head of that Frasier episode. Where they end up on the ship at the end, eating that ca- like all that massive amounts of caviar because they think they're about to get raided by the police. Ah, Frasier. It's so relatable. <laughs> <laughs> so I would recommend, actually, we're not going to do as full a breakdown of move by move or anything in this one. We are just really going to, partly because we want to make these episodes a bit shorter. And partly because a lot of you will have heard it before. Yeah, you'll have heard it before. What I will say, though, re-watching this, is that this... This is a perfect wrestling match. Like, you can't give it anything other than five stars, in my opinion. It's so, so good. Everything makes sense. Everything has a logic. Everything builds up to a crescendo. Both guys play their parts magnificently. Even the bit where Okada's not able to execute a move properly. (laughs) Brilliant in and of itself, because it is this cocky Okada, actually, for once, finding a stumbling block when he's trying to flip himself over to do a sort of neck crank double arm chicken wing thing. I don't know how you describe it. Okada's submission holds are very hard to describe. I've given up, uh, to be honest, (laughs) for most parts. A lot lot of my notes just contain the words neck crank now. (laughs) (laughs) That has been interesting, re-watching it and appreciating that Okada has been doing 
solid, logical limb work during this whole time. And I've always said, oh, Okada's thing is that he's so physically gifted he doesn't have to think about things. And that's obviously not the case truly because he is constantly going for the neck. But again, I think it's because the neck is so much harder to relate to and necessarily understand as a pinpoint precision attack. Unlike the the more relatable nature of Tanahashi's leg attacks and knee attacks. Because everyone's had a sore knee that they have to walk Mm. on or something. If you have a bad neck, for the most part, you just have to stay still. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's hard to sell it in motion. You're right. We are seeing a slight metamorphosis in Okada's moveset. Because we're getting some draping DDTs now. And we hadn't seen those in previous matches that I can tell. Or maybe only just the once. I know we saw one in the Wrestle Kingdom match. Because that was where Tanahashi was able to kick away Okada when he was doing his corner drop kick. And so then Okada... Crotches him and does it from the top rope. Sorry, yeah, no, no, you are right. I do apologise. They are a mainstay. It wasn't a one and done at like the biggest stage of them all. He, he, it's going to be a thing going forward. Would perhaps be a better way of describing it. But what is the key point of this match is that they're both learning from each other and they're having to change things up. And, Ok- and Tanahashi's just going for the low drop kicks early on, and every time Okada sees it coming. And Okada just will not be caught on the knee attack. And he might, And again, that was another thing about Okada. He's now starting to play to the crowd. He never did in the early matches, if you look at it. He's now, I guess maybe because he knows to become the champion and win it and to beat Tanahashi completely, he has to be able to do all the things that Tanahashi does. And Tanahashi can play to the crowd in these matches. And like I said, so when he does that slightly failed attempt at doing a flip over neck submission... He's looking at the crowd and he's smiling and he's like, ah, what were you worried about? And then when the move's released, he just takes a moment to look at the camera and give a thumbs up. <laughs> to add a little bit to that, it's not enough to just be beat Tanahashi on the grandest stage, play to the crowd like Tanahashi, but also to be accepted like Tanahashi. And he started that process, like we've alluded to. Uh, there are chants for him at the start of the match and the crowd... Because of how he reacts in that moment, he's in on the joke with the crowd, so he's sharing a moment with them. Again, we're just at the start of that journey, I feel. Well, that's what I was, that's why I say this is the start of a new chapter. This is Okada as the protagonist, so this is now. So maybe that year was them challenging, okay, is Okada as good as he as we think he is? Yes, he is. Well, now we can really go with him. We could have used him just for this story with Tanahashi, and they could have believably dropped him down the the pecking order a little bit and have him feud with Naito, have him tag team with Yoshihashi for six months going for the tag team titles or something. And know that two, three years down the line, they can go back to him and he'll be ready probably. But they're like, fucking hell, this guy's even better than we thought he was. And this these matches he had with Tanahashi is so great. Why should we stop at three? We've got to strike while the iron's hot. And they probably have, and maybe there was a boost in business. Maybe that Wrestle Kingdom had a bigger draw than the previous one. Yeah, I mean, um, obviously you watched uh, with Japanese commentary, I watched with English, and the previous match, there is a lot of retrospect about how this was like a launching pad for them in terms of attendance and stuff. So, obviously hot, hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, we, we covered how we feel about archival commentary in the previous episode, but there's truth to what they're saying. They don't, they, they wouldn't make it up. Yeah, and like, well, they'd, they'd embellish. They'd embellish. They wouldn't outright lie, is what I'm saying. Yeah, well, it obviously did lead to these events happening. So yeah, Okada just is. Um, 
it's curious seeing him get gain the sympathy and I just love how it's a case of how do you adapt to this situation because Okada does stick to the neck attacks as always but Tanahashi in match is deciding to make moves and decisions that will affect the course of the rest of the match because he's like okay the knee attack isn't going to work well he won't expect me going after his arm and if I do target his arm then that neutralizes the rainmaker which which Tanahashi still hasn't kicked out of at this point going into this match and again because that gives Ta- Okada another new way of of gaining sympathy because you are wondering well isn't is a rainmaker going to even be enough for Okada and when he does hit the rainmaker at last it isn't enough for him at first I don't know if that's the first time that someone kicked out of the Rainmaker, but it would make sense. And it's not even like a shocked face kicks out at the last second moment. It's like a, it's a, his arm's been severely weakened. It's taken him about half a minute to get across the ring to pin Tanahashi. You kind of expect Tanahashi to be able to kick out at this point. And so it's another level of adversity because it's like, well, now Okada's got to find something else from within him. Yeah, and that's where we see his uh, his STF for the first time. I was just going to say that's another first step we're taking in this match. And again, maybe he's been using that in other matches. We, again, don't know because we haven't been watching everything in between. Maybe he's used it in one of the other main events he's had against Naito or Suzuki or whoever. We don't know. But that move still tells a story within the match because his arm is in so much pain that he can't apply the full version for ages. He can't clasp the hands. And then when he does finally do it, you can tell that Tanahashi just has this fantastic, like, mashed-up face of pain. He's not, you know, most of his face is covered up, but what you see, he's conveying how much pain and discomfort this is causing him. But also, Okada, you can tell with his sort of gritted teeth, how much it's taking out of him to hold onto this hold as well. And his headbutts to the back as well, to get it applied. He's had to do everything to get there. So that when Tanahashi does reach the ropes to break it up, they both have to take a moment after that to recover. But yeah, I just love, you know, I love me some limb work. But then, as I said, like most of the time it's going to be the leg. But this is about as good as arm work as you can do, where it's a combination of a Tanahashi doing what he does to the arm. Instead, it's dragon screw arm whips instead yeah. of dragon screw leg whips. You're such a Brett guy with that phrase, I love me some limb work. Yeah, but he just, he lo- he does this fantastic like uppercut, overcut sequence all the time. And how, again, I, I've not had a strike exchange yet in these matches that I've been annoyed by because each strike exchange has told the right story. In the past, it's that Tanahashi can't stand toe-to-toe with Okada physically in the strike exchanges, so he has to be more creative and thoughtful. Whereas with this one, it's Okada's trying to fight through with these forearm battles, but Tanahashi's weakened his arm so much that he's doing himself no favours. And then, when he changes it up, when he hits him with a flapjack or when he hits him with a drop kick, is when he's able to change the momentum and again Okada's dropkick is increasingly like a big seismic swing of the pendulum of control and it's the move that everyone goes apeshit over. Okada in the 21st century in the 2010s was maybe the best wrestler in the world or at least was presented as such and his two main moves were a dropkick and a clothesline. If you do the simple things well enough you can make them look incredible like Iron Robin. Like, he cuts in all the time. Everyone knows he's going to do it, but it's still he still manages it, and it's still insane. Uh, the point I was going to make about the strike exchanges as well is they're sort of symbolic of the match as a whole. We talked about the pacing of this match, 
And you're right, to use a, like, an analogy, there's no slack in the rope of this match at any point, in the thread of this match. Everything is timed perfectly. Everything is built perfectly. And we've talked in other episodes, sometimes involving these wrestlers and sometimes involving just other wrestlers within this company specifically. It has happened elsewhere, but we've mainly harped on about it as a New Japan type of thing. That strike exchange is... Um, the length of them's got a little bit silly at times, but there's no, absolutely none of that in here. Yeah, and it's just that it's... This is the point of the match where we do the strike exchange. Whereas with Okada and Tanahashi, the strike exchange comes when it's the appropriate moment for them to do it. It happens early, it, ha- it can happen at the start of the match, it can happen in the middle of the match, it can happen towards the end of the match. All New Japan main events around this time were all about these crazy, like, ducks, 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 uh, evades, hits him with a surprise move, finishing sequences. But I think because it's Tanahashi doing it, he's always got that creativity. Like, every way that he evades the Rainmaker, it seems like it's a new new move each time. So he's got, like, just as the Brazilians recently had six or seven different rehearsed dance moves ready for <laughs> the match, Tanahashi had about eight, nine, ten different ways of avoiding the Rainmaker in this match. And he deploys all of them. He, de- he does deploy all of them, but the problem with that is he runs out of dances and he hits his own version of a Croatian penalty shootout in this case. But yeah, and, and it's also, but Okada is able to, to hit the, the tombstone, which is the key, which I suppose is the key killer move in for both men it's been so far. It was the move that sort of sealed Tanahashi's fate in the first match they had in 2012, the new beginning. It was also the move that sealed Okada's fate at least once. They might have, I think Tanashi might have executed it both times, actually, in both Dominion and Wrestle Kingdom. And with this one, when he's finally able to hit the tombstone, and because his knees aren't fucked, he can get up straight away from it, then he's able to do the Rainmaker, and he powers through and wins it. You know, And I just love I think Okada does such great... You know, as great as Tanashi's attack of the arm is... Okada's selling of it is equally as brilliant. You know, when he does the Rainmaker pose at one point, he can't hold up his other arm. He switches where his elbow pad goes because he knows that he's instinctively going to do the top rope elbow drop, but he's going to at least put... But even that is only able to do so much. So he doesn't sell it as badly this time, but he's still, you know, in pain. It's just, you know, that you can't go wrong with this match. Listen back to us, you know, going gaga over it three or four years ago, and we just... We've returned and it's no different. And this is the highest rated match they have on Cage Match, in case you're curious. It has an average rating of 9.74. Hmm. I mean, what can you do with that? I mean, you can't really go any higher. Actually, it's to be fair, it's the equal highest. I misread this. The, their King of Pro Wrestling match later on this year, so the one that's on the other slice of bread in the with the meat that is the G1 Climax match, is also is 9.73 but the Wrestle Kingdom match which I say is the final chapter of the two different trilogies that is also given the same average of 9.74 and does also have five stars from Meltzer so it'll be curious now whilst with that one this is when we were just getting tons of five star matches being thrown at us so we won't have would have watched that like maybe a month later but with this one, we're going to get to watch these matches in the next couple of days. Yeah, I'm getting in my head now when you talk about trilogies within trilogy. 
that always sunny in Philadelphia episode where you just pan to Charlie and his wall is just covered in like sheets of paper and string. Are you telling me that that's not how Gado books things? <laughs> I, I can't argue against it. <laughs> Maybe not anymore, but it was back then. But anyway, I, yeah, I don't. Yeah, I just watched the match. Listen to our previous episode if you want to re- re-listen to it. If you have to watch any match of the series so far, just on its own, whilst watching those three earlier matches or four earlier matches does make you appreciate elements of it. The story that they tell is so perfectly formed that you could just watch this cold. Like, a friend of mine is trying to start watching some New Japan stuff now, and I am trying to think of, like, a playlist of, like, 10 to 20 matches and this, uh, even more so than the brilliant second, uh, the brilliant um, Dominion match they'd had the year before, this is as good as Pro Wrestling, which I also would consider giving five stars to, and I know you did. Th- this is basically as good as wrestling kind of can get, really. I mean, I've been saying, like, this year I'm I'm turning 40. Well, not this calendar year, but the, the next 365 days I'm turning 40 and I'm going to do like a top 40 of loads of things. And there's no way this match isn't in my top 40 favorite wrestling matches of all time. I just can't see how that's possible. There's, there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this match whatsoever. It's, it just flows so well and tells the story so well. Well, what makes it perfect is even in its imperfection, the imperfection works within what the match is supposed to be telling us about the characters. That, that's it. That's the thing though. Like Maybe he even meant to do it like that. Maybe even meant to screw it up. I mean, it's hard to tell, isn't it? it? It's one of those. And and when you can do that and do it in that way where everyone's got doubt about it, I think, you've, I think you're there, really. You're at the top level of what you're doing. So, yeah, this is a shorter episode, but that's what we were aiming for, and I don't think it's that much shorter. Well, it is a little bit. But, yeah, just check it out. Five stars. You saying five stars, Simon? So yes, as I was saying, this is a second new trilogy, and we are getting to the meat of things next time with what, Simon? We are off to our first trip to the G1 in this series, a match taking place in the A block on the 10th of August 2013. So another four months up, four months down the line, we're back again, but we only have 30 minutes to do it this time. And it's the first time since Okada's return where the IWGB Heavyweight Championship is not on the line. But is it worth our attention and is it worth your attention? You better believe it. But until we all watch that and discuss that, Simon, how can people get in touch with you? Uh, people can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm known as Simon Cross Free. Free for the number of words in High Fly Flow. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for arm. N for no, leave my arm alone. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, letterbox. If you put in our Gmail at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. LMTYSpod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name's Lorcan Mullen. My name's Simon Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. I hope you'll stay with us as we continue to rerun the rivalry. Well, Shabu, you know I'm in.